Ending a story is difficult, because you're calling something finished, and that means you have to stand back, look at it, and consider, did it work? One year ago, I started this campaign, and while it's not finished, the adventure at the town of Borlane marks a clear plateau in the story. The party has reached 5th level, they've vanquished Agoramaya, resurrected Voss, and at least for a moment, recovered the Balnexicon. Reflection is warranted. The questions I'm asking here are, what is an ending? What purpose does it serve? What makes a good ending? How does that apply to RPGs? And because this is not the campaign end, what are the hooks that lead into the next phase of the game? This is part five of five of our learnings from the adventure at the Temple of Borlane, big finishes and new hooks. This is the season finale for Anatomy of a Campaign. Story's End answers the central dramatic question posed in the beginning. That's its function and pretty much informs when a story should come to a close. That definition feels incomplete because there's so much more we expect from an ending, but actually no, that's all an ending needs to do in order to meet the base requirements for an ending. Bad endings are often a function of bad central questions, meaning I think when an ending is unfulfilling, it's because the beginning didn't do what it was supposed to. Specifically, plant a powerful enough question in the minds of the audience that they cared about. Good endings operate on multiple levels and pay off everything you've been setting up all story long. Sometimes they sneak something in that you didn't even realize you were waiting for until it shows up at the end. The Sixth Sense worked because everyone thought they were watching the redemption story of a little boy only to discover it was also the redemption story of a ghost. There are three endings to a story. There is the functional ending. This is the physical plot. It's the destruction of the Death Star, the Emperor being thrown down the energy shaft, the nuke blowing up the alien spaceship. If you take out the functional ending of a story, well, it doesn't function. You can't get away leaving this one out. That wouldn't be a bad story. That would simply not be a story at all. In your game, it's when the monster's beaten. Next, there is the emotional ending. And I'm not talking about the denouement. That's different. This is the conclusion to the hero's personal challenge. This is Luke unmasking Vader. The Hulk catching Iron Man as he plummets from the dimensional portal. Iceman telling Maverick that he can be his wingman any day. Mrs. Incredible learning that Jack-Jack has powers. The emotional ending is more important to the story's ability to satisfy the audience, but it's not functionally necessary. If you leave this out, the story's done, but it feels lifeless. I can't think of any time it's been left out, but I can think of plenty of times when it's been tacked on and cheesy. The best example I can think of is Rambo's speech at the end of First Blood Part 2. Pure 80s saccharine. This exact same moment was handled so much better in the original First Blood, when Rambo breaks down and vents his frustration to the colonel. He's beaten the town and done what he set out to do, but he's broken too, and this is his call for help. I actually think the original First Blood is one of the best movies ever made. The third ending is the denouement. 
which ties up loose ends and serves to show a glimpse into what comes next. It's the Ewoks dancing, the metal ceremony in Star Wars. It's there to clarify who lived and who died. It has similarities to the emotional ending, and I think some stories conflate them, but that's a mistake. Stories without denouement feel like they end abruptly. Stories that wallow in the denouement feel like they drag on. <coughs> Return of the King. So how does this apply to RPGs? Let's talk through player expectations that align with each of these three endings to help dig out some insights. The functional ending is the final conflict. Mostly it's a fight, but it can be a lethal puzzle or some other challenge. It could be all of these things. Player expectation is that this will be tough. The toughest thing so far. For my game, that fight was with Agoramaya in the temple. We'd been building her up for some time, a rogue hag who now had connections to the serpent god Vizuki. I think we did well here. I created a custom creature based on a hag crossed with a naga. She had legendary action spells, a massive and horrific form. She was cunning, retreating to better ground when the PCs started winning. She made them face their fear and dive deeper into the depths of this cavern system than they wanted. The expectation is that the party will have to dig deep and be braver than they have before to win through to the end. In many ways, you can get away with just designing a tough and innovative combat. Just. Ask yourself, what about the functional challenge is unique? Is it something they've never seen before? Is it a harder version of something from their past? Are there extenuating circumstances that raise the stakes? There's no formula for success here, but you can't go wrong by making this an over-the-top challenge. What is the emotional ending in an RPG? For this one, you'll have to be on your toes because this lives far more in the mind of the players than the DM. You have to be on the lookout well ahead of the ending for what will give your climax an emotional punch. And I'm not going to lie, this one will not always land chances are your players will not want to link themselves in any real emotional way. They're here to have fun, not get their guts pulled out. They don't want it to be too heavy. Most don't, anyways. Especially in a group activity, this can represent a level of vulnerability most people are uncomfortable feeling, let alone expressing, even amongst their closest friends. In my experience, often the best you're going to hope for is the frenetic desire to win. It's those moments when people hang on every dice roll. The players go berserk when someone gets that clutch natural 20. I think I mostly failed to land this ending in the Temple of Borlane. The resonance of bringing Voss back to life did not land as well as I thought it would. Defeating Agoramaya had more of an exhausting effect than a euphoric one, meaning when the killing blow was landed, it was a long time coming. She, like so many big bads in D&D, was a sack of hit points. Also, the Battle Nexicon was almost immediately taken away by Fearsmith. After they won, the party had two downed members and one, the Bard Jarrus, who was to face the Gates of Death. They were trying to make a plan to get in a long rest down in the caves. Fearsmith shows up and essentially demands the Balnexicon, saying they're too weak to fight him, which was true. They give him the Balnexicon mostly because they didn't care about the book, which is likely the biggest issue with this mini-ending in the campaign. The party was not invested enough. This had been Caldus' quest, and he died a long time ago in relative real time, probably only 
several days within the game's time, but it had been months since we covered Calda's death in the campaign. But I said it mostly failed. Two things happened that I thought worked emotionally. First was the Gates of Death. We've done versions of this now four times, including this one. I believe it's delivering diminishing returns. This time I changed it radically based on Jairus's proximity to the power of the temple. My reasoning is that holy places are meant to help souls reach their final rest. So rather than get sucked away to fight for his eternal spirit amongst shadow demons, Jairus was protected and stayed with his body. He saw the others trying to save him via an out-of-body experience, and eventually that there were zones of protection keeping the shadow demons at bay, clearly connected to the temple. And he met Augustus, the old farmer who'd been helping them. The last time Jairus saw him, the party left him guarding the upper temple. For them to be interacting meant that Augustus was dead too. This was a poignant moment, and when I run these things, even though the other players are not present, or I should say, even though the other characters are not present, the other players are listening in, and I could feel the impact it had on the party to know that Augustus had been harmed and was most likely dead. Jairus and Augustus worked to activate the temple's power from the spirit realm. That was the nature of this quote-unquote gates of death encounter. It was a meaningful goal for Jairus, and I think Grayson enjoyed this mini ghost story about how he could return to his body. It was less about fighting things and more about clever solutions. Augustus was not so lucky, which brings us to the second part of the emotional ending that I think worked. If you've been listening, you may recall that I intended Augustus to be a comedic character. Circumstances switched up on me, and he ended up being representative of what the characters were fighting for. An honorable old soldier trying to live his life, having the courage to make one last effort to serve his people. Fearsmith killed him, used his terror powers to burst the old man's heart. Certainly not very upbeat, but we get to know that Augustus died doing something worthwhile. Also, I believe it set off an important resonance within Bren the Half-Orc fighter. More about that in the next section, which covers the denouement and the future hooks. The emotional ending is an area where you can only offer up the opportunity for some or all of the players to have a moment. Throughout the game and sessions leading up to this, you'll need to pay attention to what matters to the PCs and use that wherever possible. I knew they'd taken a liking to the old guy and that his survival would have been something they cared about. Yes, I took what they cared about and I killed it. I could have set it up so they'd try to rescue something they loved instead, made it about the puppy in danger kind of thing. It's cheap emotional manipulation, sure, but it has to grow organically from the players. I can't make them give a crap about the old man, but once they do, I can use that. The master level of the emotional ending is neither of these variations of emotional manipulation, but rather the self-revelation. Important, the master, in this case, would be the player. Again, you can only set things up as the DM. If in response to what they've gone through, a player decides to share their inner monologue, or better yet, talk to another character and share how they have changed, well, that is just some next-level role-playing. They do this on Critical Role all the time. Truly, I think Matt Mercer is amazing, but it is his players that make that game what it is. As DM, you can tee them up. You can have an NPC ask them a question that might initiate the kind of revelation you're looking for, but you cannot make the revelation happen. Sidebar, there are games that do make this happen. 
In the RPG Masks, for example, there are game mechanics about opening up to other characters. The game itself facilitates this kind of interaction and gives a benefit. It's, it's a move that you can make. Masks is one of my favorite of the apocalypse hacks. With games like D&D that don't organize themselves around this kind of thing, it's best not to force anything and always be respectful of people at the table and what they want. The danger is that you are treading close to triggers for people, so you have to be real careful. The tools at your disposal are allied NPCs, the kindly local cleric who asks, was it all worth it? The town guard who snarls, by what right do you barge in here? The urchin who shouts, how many orcs did you kill? It's about giving them a chance to be the hero, and it reminds me of what I consider to be one of the best endings I've ever read in a novel. Spoilers if you have not read Taipan by James Clavell. In Taipan, the hero, Dirk Struen, has died, and left his son Cullum to be the Taipan, head of the noble house. The young man is distraught. He's not the man his father ever was, not one-tenth. How can he be the Taipan? An old artist who used to work for his father, a pathetic sort, watches the boy and sees that he needs a boost. So he goes over and sheepishly asks the boy for some money, calling him Taipan. Because no one is ever ready to be the Taipan. It's a role they must rise up to meet when fate thrusts it upon them. By having this secondary character come in and say... Taipan, can I, can I borrow a few pounds? It's an amazing moment. It dimensionalizes this side character, and it also shows the succession from father to son, from one Taipan to the next. Your players may not feel like big damn heroes until someone treats them like they are. Have someone do that. Have someone ask them something that sets them up for a great line. Bonus, if you're an experienced player at the table, you can do this for another player. It's the height of player generosity to play second fiddle so someone else can grab a moment in the spotlight. The third ending is fairly low pressure, and the only way you can get this wrong is by not having one. It's the denouement, which is derived from the French verb meaning untie, which disappoints me. It should be something like French for burying the dead or something equally maudlin. After the victory is won, it's time to count the loot and head back to safety for a party, a good sleep, and to tie up loose ends. See, untie really doesn't work. Tie up would make more sense. Ah well, c'est la vie. Chances are you had the tension turned up to 11 during the climactic end, so this is where the players deserve to kick back and take a chill. We had an entire session dedicated to this after the battle with Aurora The players dealt with the town above and managed to pick up Bruce's new character. More on her later. The key thing here is to have a place for the players to kick back and enjoy themselves. For us, the players did not feel safe in Borlane because of what happened when they got in the town and how some townsfolks were turned evil, they decided to leave. What's interesting is they elected to go to a city up north called Medier, essentially to enjoy their post-battle revelry in a place more to their liking. The endings that I love are the ones that let the characters relax, but that also speak to the next big thing. Nothing does that better than the Marvel post-credit scenes. The quintessential future hook is Nick Fury inviting Tony Stark into the Avengers Initiative. I love the idea of post-credit scenes. I really do enjoy post-credit scenes.
Because this is not the end of our campaign, there are more than a few future hooks embedded in the story. All potential lines to new adventures, but also future threats. Because this is not the end of our campaign, there are more than a few future hooks embedded in the story. All of these are potential lines to adventure, but also future threats. Number one, the faithful of Semyana. The boogeyman from the very beginning. They learn that the faithful forces have begun invading the rootlands. Number two, the other temples. They learn that there are other places of power and that all of them are what protected Etheria from total destruction in the past. They are urged to find these places and dedicate them to the service of the Morrigan before they can be defiled as the temple of Borlane was. Good old Constantine points out that there's likely to be a lot of loot in these other temples. And spoiler alert, this seems to be the thing that they're going to be heading towards. Third, Intellect Devourer Mir. A powerful member of their party has been taken, and the foul creature now occupying his skull can cause untold harm. And there could be more of them, since many townsfolk have gone missing. Specifically, the evil ones. Number four, the bone necklace. Since the first mission, the party has had the bone necklace. What dread purpose does it serve, and why was the pirate Captain Nupo so keen to get it, and Mig's Ten Fingers so keen to give it away? I thought this would have been the focus of the campaign, actually, but it has failed to catch the characters' imaginations. Right now, it hangs around Constantine's neck, waiting for the right moment. Five, Fearsmith. Bren, furious over Augustus's death, invokes the Morrigan to aid him in hunting down and killing Fearsmith. Just an amazing turn of events because it deepens Bren, who he is, and what can happen to him in the future. Love that Joe grabbed onto this opportunity to deepen Bren's motivation. And six, lastly, the Hags. Rudwilla now has the Balnexicon and has pledged a favor to the party in return. But Hags are not to be trusted, and the party no longer has the protection of Mir among their number. As Mike had done for me with the last podcast, Bruce was kind enough to send me a recording of his perspective on the ending and the hooks, and I find it fascinating to listen to what other players think. Compare and contrast it to my perceptions. I think that would be valuable for the listeners here as well. So check this one out. Hi, this is Bruce, player of the recently deceased Mir the Druid. I wish Mir would rest in peace, but such is not his miserable fate. I'd like to say a few things from the player corner of Anatomy of a Campaign. Many loose ends remain. Combined, these loose ends portend several more acts, each with its many scenes. On a personal note, I have a new character to introduce. Sativa is a very different sort of druid from Mir, although she's also human. Mir was allied with the Shadow Fae and cooperated with a hag coven. Sativa is allied with the Bright Fae, such as most elves, dryads, sylphs, and fawns. Sativa met the main party last session and already accompanies them on a probationary basis. This story felt pretty hardcore to me, probably because of the high fatality rate. I really appreciate playing in hard mode. It's difficult to find a GM able to find the right balance of narrative and challenge. I think Phil's doing great with this. Mir's death was 100% my error. Caution, exhaustion, and pain should have kept him close to his allies. He should have been happy to drive away the troll and should have hung back in fear. Moving after it was foolish, and Mir received the reward due to fools. 
several loose ends remain from Mir. Calda's death was the result of good role-playing. Calda's player played him accurately to character. Unfortunately, this got him bitten in half by a saltwater crocodile. Oh well. Calda's replacement, Jarus the Bard, seems to have found his place. Several loose ends remain from Calda. Voss's death was also the result of good role-playing. Voss found herself in an awful situation, and she took the most honorable way out. Unfortunately, it cost Voss her life. While Mir didn't agree with Voss's principles about good and evil, he did respect her decision. Mir was honored to carry Voss's tattered, acid-etched remains while we sought resurrection, dropping them only after his death. Now that Voss is alive again, I expect her to drive a big part of future narratives. I consider the struggle against Semyana and the Semyanatics to be the main theme of the campaign. Voss is at the heart of that struggle. That's why she had to return to life. Death and resurrection is an important aspect of her journey. I hope we can weave that into the future narrative as a significant element. I don't know what Voss will do next, but it may be important. I hope she gets inside the decision curve of the semiotics rather than the reverse. There's a theme of loose ends here. I'll name a few. There are the three brothers who fixed up Mir's salvaged sailboat. They are still waiting at our hideout, back near Outpost 9. An intellect devourer rides about in the body of a shape-shifting druid. Consider all the nasty options that shape-shifting and druidic magic of the shepherd's circle open up to a villain. The devourer also has all Mir's knowledge of the party and the fae. It'll be back. All Mir's old comrades should hope they never meet him face to face. So, Voss's activity may have already alerted the Semyonitics as to her new direction in life. She is no longer their friend. Possibly they don't know yet. They will likely be after her. Voss's best option may be to get them first. Bren's ancestral shield is within a few days' march. Unfortunately, Bren and his comrades are not quite ready to tangle with the elite of Semyana. It can happen while we're still fifth level, but it will not end well until the current group has adjusted to its recent changes in membership. Constantine seems to have some dwarf-related stuff that pulls him in. Constantine may not be confident that his friends would back him on a personal mission. He would be wrong, of course, but he still needs to discover this. That's just a fraction of the remaining loose ends. The grand story arc is not yet clear to me. Hopefully, the next act will see the party pull together and find focus. If that is not our fate, then it will still be an interesting story. Sometimes, the most interesting parts are setbacks and defeats. I won't say much yet about my new character, Sativa, except to say that she will not disappoint.
Okay, to sum up key points on endings and hooks. Endings are about answering the main dramatic question of your story. They have three components. Functional, which is the confrontation, usually with the big bad. Make sure it answers the main plot question and that it is appropriately challenging and feels like a major accomplishment. Second, uh, emotional, where the internal revelations for the characters come out. And this is out of your control, but you have to give them the opportunity to have a cathartic moment. Use NPCs or even other PCs as a tool to set up folks to have a great character moment. And third, denouement, where they luxuriate in their rewards or mourn their losses. If it's not the end of the campaign, this is where you start the next cycle of your game in the guise of hooks. While the podcast has only been published since last July, I began recording in January of 2018. At the time, I was very focused on not talking about who I am and why I do this. I wanted it to be pure content. The fact of the matter is that I'm just some dude who has run role-playing games for going on 40 years. Not just D&D. In fact, until 4th edition, I'd say I mostly ran other games. But D&D was my first, and it's the one I come back to all the time. I've run games at Gen Con, which is a trip. I've been able to pass along the RPG bug to at least one of my kids. I've never published anything or participated in the game industry. I'm a writer. The best unpublished writer in the world, in fact. Aren't we all? 2018 was the year I stretched to make this podcast. 2019 is the year I get back to writing. The podcast will continue, though I imagine the format will continue to change. I have my eye on writing a novella and would look to record and distribute that here as an audio product. I would like to publish out an actual module and even have the rough outline for one. I'm getting back into art, taking some online courses. 2019 is shaping up to be a busy year and it will take time to do all of this. The process of being creative is everything. The data I see suggests Anatomy of a Campaign has a small, microscopic really, audience, but it's global, which shows me that the need and desire to be creative, to be part of communal storytelling, is universal. Whatever that thing you've been wishing you could do, that thing that remains in the back of your mind despite any discouragement life has thrown your way, I urge you to do it. Do something small. Just take a step. Then take another. Thank you, fellow travelers, for taking part in Season 1. I look forward to hearing from you in Season 2. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. The sun was still an hour above the horizon, but the swamp cut the light to a spoiled gloom. Noreen's bare feet thudded on the elevated walkway toward Rudwilla's house, the height making her stomach lurch more than the smell of the rotten catfish she carried. She hustled inside the open doorway, moving into what felt like pure darkness. The background thrum of bugs, predator birds, and lizards suddenly cut off as if she'd gone deaf. Ma'am? she said into the darkness. On memory, she gently lay the bucket of dead fish on the floor beneath an end table made of bone. One of the catfish flopped around. That happened sometimes in Rudwilla's hut. Noreen was certain she'd killed all the fish, gutting them but leaving the eviscera. One must always leave the eviscera. She backed out, turning just before reaching the doorway to see a stout figure silhouetted there, masculine with a cloak and cowl. 
she could just make out the smooth nothingness of his face. No eyes, nose, or mouth. Just a single horrible slit running horizontally across the middle from ear to ear. Sorry, she blurted, making herself small. She would have scuttled away, but he left her nowhere to go except back into the dark of Rudwilla's hut. The slit in the thing's face twitched as if it might snap open. Noreen clenched her teeth. One did not show fear among the Grahmen and never around Rudwilla. She thought it prudent to keep her calm with this stranger as well, at least outwardly. Shall, shall I announce you, sir? From within the folds of its cloak, the big man produced a thick tome the color of dried blood. It glowed, yet produced no light, and wisps of smoke came up from around the edges. It made Noreen think of her brother Kadaran, who died from rotgut for some reason. How he had screamed for hours before finally succumbing to the fungal disease. It never dawned on Noreen to reach for the book. She just stood looking wide-eyed at her mistress's visitor. After a moment, he let the tome fall heavily to the hut floor, and she saw that it was the thing's hand which was smoking. Blackened and burned, the skin of that hand was cracked and bleeding. Slowly he drew it back and said, Tell her. Noreen opened her mouth, thought for a moment, and then steeled herself. Tell her what? That horrible slit in its face opened a fraction, and within she could see teeth, and, and, was that an eye? The girl lives. Noreen repeated it. The girl lives. The eyes snapped closed, and this heavy being in the shape of a man stepped back. The girl lives, and she serves the void now. The void, Noreen thought. What does that mean? It means the dragon, it snapped, startling her. Tell Rudwilla they travel north, and if she wants my help, the price has gone up. Noreen could suddenly see a string of women dressed in white being led to the edge of a cliff, a horrible distance which clawed at her mind and threatened to pull her over. She fought to push the imagining away, but it forced itself into her mind. That slit curled up across the thing's face. She could hear cartilage crack around it, working into the semblance of a smile. The world shifted. Was Noreen seeing her own face among the women marching to the cliff? Or was she already one of those women, marching towards the edge? I must not show fear, she thought in the moment before she screamed. She was falling. No cliff, no ground far below, only a single tooth-rimmed eye. And then he was gone, and Noreen was on her knees in the dark of Rudwilla's hut. There was only the sound of a single dead fish slapping in its bucket, and that thing's final whisper. Unleash me.